The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Good evening. I hope you're well tonight. Title of tonight's Bible study, again, we're in the Gospel of Mark, but the title is The Coming of the Kingdom. That's what we see is tonight as Jesus begins his, specifically his Galilean ministry. The coming of the kingdom, obviously it's just related to the coming of the king. And I oftentimes tell people when we, when we talk about Jesus being Lord or Jesus being our king, I'm not sure we understand or grasp what that means because of our form of government, democracy and and having representation, but we have chosen to follow a king, and we follow his will, and his will is good for us. It's not restrictive. Our takeaway is that Jesus invites us into a life-giving relationship. I'm going to say that again. Jesus issues an invitation. He doesn't require, he doesn't force, but as he stands here before you tonight, he would issue an invitation. He would reach out to you. He would invite you to come with him, to join him, uh, on, on to following after him. And, and let, let me say something. That is a good thing. That is a life-giving thing. Uh, uh, right around Easter, I, I, I've seen in the newspaper where this church in Oceanside had the, a, a replica of the tabernacle. And I've been to Israel a number of times, so I've been to the Temple Mount, and I've seen replicas of the temple and what it looked like, you know, really impressive. You can, you really allows your mind to, to, to use your imagination. But Wanda, my wife, and I, one Sunday afternoon, we went over to this church, and, and, and it, it, it wasn't what I expected. You know, I've read through the Bible and the dimensions and everything. It wasn't quite as large as I expected, but this is what I want you to think about tonight. And so you enter through the east, right? The, the tabernacle, the, the court, the outer court. It looks like there's this linen sheets all around it, suspended by poles. And so you enter in through the east. And as you, as you enter in through these, these, the perimeter, the first thing you see is an altar, a large altar. Matter of fact, if I came up to it, it, it about came up to my chest. And there was a fire inside. So you, you step into the through the perimeter through this outer into this outer courtyard and you encounter an altar. Mark that in your mind, and there's a fire there to consume the sacrifice. And depending depending on what time of the year or, or what festival or or, or what what um, feast you were going to, you would you would bring with you an animal to sacrifice. Again, dependent upon why you're there. Think about this. And it's my understanding, um, I just started the, reading through the book of Leviticus a couple of days ago, because of this imagery, you would place your hand upon the animal and the priest would take it, he would slay it, and then he would put it upon the altar on your behalf. So there's the, the connection of, of, I am coming to the tabernacle to be with God. Keep this in your mind. I am coming to a specific location at a certain time of the year, according to a calendar. I am bringing an offering, and it could be, it could be 
um, wheat, it could be barley, it could, it could be a number of things, but I'm, I put my hand on it, and then it is offered on my behalf. Now, this is, this is, what's, this is where I'm at. Hope I don't lose you. So I come in, there's the altar, they had little uh, pieces of meat. You take it and you throw it on and you kind of get the experience. But now listen, and as you're standing at the altar, you're standing on this side of the altar, on the other side of the altar is the entrance to the holy place. And you see cherubim that are embroidered upon the entrance to the holy place. So you've come to where God is, you offer a sacrifice according to God's direction, and you see the holy place, and you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is behind, is behind the cherubim, even into the holy of holies. You are meeting, you are in God's presence. When you, when you come to the scriptures, you are in his presence. When you observe communion, this is something we're going to do tonight together at the conclusion of our Bible study. When you observe communion, you 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 are consciously engaging God in his presence when you do these things. But Danny, I don't feel anything. It doesn't have anything to do with feelings. They may or may not be there. But you are enjoying his presence and you are being transformed. You are being changed. You're, yes, I know I'm all worked up about this, I'm sorry. But your character and your nature are being changed whether you realize it or not. So, and it's, we'll, we'll be here in a second. But listen. And he, he initiated this because he wants to be with you. He created this way for you and I to be with him, and we are with him, but when we turn our hearts to, to him in prayer, or in worship, or in the word, or in communion, or in fellowship, we are experiencing his presence in such a way that we are transformed. Again, on the cross, on the altar, our sins have been dealt with once and for all, once and for all, so that you will enter into his presence regularly. And the enemy says, but you said, but you did, and we point to the cross. And as we are in his presence, which we are tonight, we are changed and transformed. Part of the, my, my thinking behind this is why church? Why home fellowships? Why, why a devotional life? Why a prayer life? Why a worship life? Trust me. Engage in God's presence and you will change. It's no longer, I'm going to try not to do that. I'm going to try not to do that. I'm going to try not to do that. I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to try and do this. If that all comes to a screeching halt, when you realize that if I spend time in his presence, when I consciously turn my heart towards him, those things fall by the wayside. They're like, they're like in the fall when the leaves, you know, begin to die and fall. And they're beautiful. It's a, it's a beautiful process. I especially appreciate the process when the trees lose their leaves in somebody else's yard, not mine. Because they can be the ones who clean them up. So when you see Jesus tonight ministering, see him coming to be with us. See him coming to take care of our great problem so that we will be with him. Jesus invites us into a life-giving relationship. Life-giving relationship. Life-giving relationship. 
Jesus would spend most of his three years in, a, in, a, in an area to the north in Israel called the Galilee. The region was named for its proximity to, to the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias it was called, Gennesaret. The historian Josephus tells us that this total area, now this is where Jesus would minister the most, this total area was 60 by 30 miles in dimension. There are times when, not so much recently, right, but there's times when you're in Israel and they take you out on this boat and you go out on the boat and they give you an opportunity to walk on the water. Well, not really. They, they make the invitation. Not too many people take them up on it. And the tour guide will be on the deck of the boat and you'll be around singing all kinds of songs. And you look around the perimeter of, 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 of the Sea of Galilee and it, it just, it, it's, it's untouched. It's untouched, and you do see a community or a village here and there, but for the most part, it's untouched. And then he'll do this, let me see. So the north is this way. He'll go like this. And he'll say, look at the land, but look at the land between my hands. And it'll be just like this. And he says the majority of Jesus' ministry took place in that area. It's small, it's obscure. Obscurity. And yet, look at what Jesus did in coming to this area we call the Galilee. It had 204 villages which were leveled uh, prior to 70 AD by the Romans. A population of about that, that time, 3 million people. It was home to both the Jews and Gentiles. This wouldn't be the case down in Judea. That would be the region around Jerusalem. There would be more of... Uh, it would, uh, Judea would have a high, much higher representation of only Jews. But to, to the north and the Galilee, not so. That's not the case. Those in Judea looked down on the Galileans because of the Gentile presence. Also because of an accent which made it difficult for the, uh, the Galileans to pronounce, pronounce certain Hebrew words the Jews in Judea would mock Galileans. And the reason I bring this up is because who is Jesus going to choose to be his disciples? Primarily Galileans. You want to, think, you want to see how God thinks? He chooses men who were looked down upon by the, Jew, by the religious community to be his most intimate and closest followers. And the reason I bring that up tonight is because some of you feel like you are in obscurity. Some of you feel like you are a Galilean. As a matter of fact, when Peter, remember he was around the fire, Jesus was being tried in the high priest's home, he was recognized by his accent. You too are with him, for we hear by your accent that you are a Galilean. These men were fiercely loyal. They were hard workers. And they, for the most part, followed the Mosaic law. A little bit more about the geography, because I think this is important, especially as we move into subsequent Bible studies. The region, so the region of the Galilee is here. The region of the Judea is here. So you know in your mind that men in the Galilee during three times a year would have to go down to Jerusalem to worship for the feast. But in between was Samaria. And Samaritans were hated by the Jews because they were a mixture. Ethnically, they were a mixture of Jew and Gentile. There's a long story there. But isn't it interesting that when Jesus would, in a parable, make somebody a hero, 
he would talk about the good Samaritan, that Jesus would elevate a Samaritan. In the book of Acts, Philip would spend time ministering in Samaria. Jesus would include it in his restatement of the Great Commission in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And this is what Pastor Daniel talked about this past weekend in recognition of, of um, in recognition of Pentecost. Thank you. You guys are leaving me hanging there. You know that? Uh, but that's okay. That's okay. So in Acts chapter 1, 8, listen, because Jesus includes Samaria. Jesus includes Galileans. Jesus includes hated Samaritans in the Great Commission. You know this verse well, but you will receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. So at this point in the story, it's been six months since Jesus' temptation. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we dealt with Jesus as being tempted in the wilderness. It's been six months. He has already cleansed the temple or purchased, that is where he went in and turned over the tables, set free uh, the, uh, the, the, the animals that were being sold for sacrifice. He purges it. He calls the temple, my father's house shall be known as a house of prayer. He associates himself with the temple at that time, not the corrupt religious system, but with the temple. He's already selected a couple of disciples. John's gospel told, has told us that at Cana, he's already turned water into wine and met a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan woman at a well. This timeline allows for an overlap, the mystery of the ministry of John the Baptist. So I, I would best say, because we'll see here that John's being arrested, is that John's ministry is certainly beginning to set and Jesus's is beginning to rise. So let's go ahead and look at verses 14 and 15, the Galilean ministry, the early message. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, again the region, proclaiming the gospel of God, verse 15. And this was his message. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, repent, and believe the gospel. Jesus comes preaching, proclaiming, heralding. In the same way that John would speak of the Messiah coming in the wilderness, Jesus, now the Messiah, comes and he communicates. He, he, he comes as a teacher. He comes as a, as, a, as a rabbi. He comes to the people. The idea here is that he's going to each and every village, communicating either uh, person by person or group by group, but he's making sure that everyone hears the message that has been shared with us, and the message is called the gospel. The gospel speaks, listen to this, listen to this. The gospel speaks of an event so profound that from that point forward in human history, nothing is ever the same. You and I have this vantage point of always looking back. You and I have this vantage point of, of having terminology that is rooted in Christianity. But when Jesus first came, it was dramatically different than anything the people have ever, been, ever experienced. 400, well, that's five, 400 years of silence when John the Baptist speaks in the wilderness, 400 years of there not being a prophet, 
until John comes. And then when Jesus comes, the word of God is made available to all people. It's not restricted to some people. It's made available to all people. And you and I have Bibles, multiple Bibles. You and I have have study tools and and online resources. And so we have the word uh, abundance. The people of this time, this was so dramatic to them that he would come to them. And in their minds, they're going, but he's coming to Galilee? Remember it was said of Jesus, you know, that that Jesus of Nazareth, and somebody said, well, can anything good come from Nazareth? So I want you to see God's heart here. Please see, please note that it's the gospel of God. Make no mistake about it, there's one gospel and there's one Jesus. There's one gospel and there's one Jesus. And Jesus has made certain that anybody, anybody who's interested Anybody who's interested in knowing him will come to know him. It's not restrictive at all in any way. Tim Keller wrote of the gospel, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hoped. My friends, The altar, the cross, is where your sins have been dealt with once and for all so that you might enter in to his presence. And as you enter into his presence, as you become aware of his his presence, as you develop a sensitivity in your heart and your mind, I'm not talking about being hyper-religious or spiritual. Jesus wants anybody who desires to know his presence, to experience his presence. And Jesus knows that when you experience his presence, you will be changed and transformed. And you will, listen, you will have life. I I don't know if it's the American work ethic, but we want to work for everything. It's very difficult for you to give me any Mexican food, I'll take it, but it's very difficult for me to to take things from people, but Jesus hands you salvation. Jesus hands you freely the forgiveness of sins. And and although I need to be conscious of my weakness, he doesn't want me to focus on that. He wants me to focus on the fact that he has done everything for me and that my life would represent a response of gratitude for that I am don't need to tell you I'm older. I don't need to tell you that I've been uh, a Christian since I was 22 years old. And, and at this time of my life, I am more aware of the fact that God wants me to focus less on my weaknesses and my inadequacies and to focus more on what he has accomplished for me on my behalf. And it's life-changing. Verse 15, it says, the time is fulfilled. This is Jesus' word. The time is fulfilled. It's complete which essentially means that the time to act is now. And my friends, although we may look at a book that was written some 2,000 years ago, the time for you to act is now. The time for you to enter into his presence is now. The time for you to be transformed is now. The time for you to meet Jesus is now. And the time for him to give you life is now. 
That's what it means when he says the time was fulfilled. Any consideration of Jesus requires action. You know, when I was little, my mom, my mom made tortillas for, 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 for breakfast and for dinner. And, um, you know, the, the, the kitchen, you know, it was an activity. It was, you know, mariachi music playing, very strong coffee percolating, and usually the smell of a cigarette. And I, I know that would bother some people, but it's nostalgic to me. I, I don't, I don't. But nevertheless, it has a unique place in my life. And, and, and she would take... She would take the tortillas and she would, you know, she would, she would talk to you. She would like roll them out, flip them over, throw a little flour, baking soda. She would be doing all this talk, usually telling me what to do. You know, you need to do this, you need to do that, mijo. And then she had this special pan that we had on the stove, gas stove, and she would take it like this. And I mean, like I would have it all over myself, right? She'd like this, she'd flip it on there. And then the thing that was mysterious to me, because she never burned her fingers, she reached over and grabbed the edge, and she would flip it over like that. And my friends found out in the afternoon that she would make tortillas and fresh salsa for my dad's dinner. So, so she would make tortillas so my, my dad could eat his breakfast, then she would make some tacos. We didn't call them burritos back then. She would make some tacos, put them in foil, put them in his lunchbox, and that's what he would have for lunch. And if I was lucky, there would be some leftovers. But my friends would start coming around because you could smell the tortillas being made in the evening. And she, she was generous with my tortillas. And she, you know, they, here's all these kids lining up like this in, you know, in the kitchen. And she would take the tortillas straight off of the grill. She put a little bit of butter on it. Obviously, it would begin to melt a little bit. She'd go over and get a little bit of salt. Remember the salt with the little girl with the, with the umbrella? And anyways, when it rains, it pours, something like that. And she would sprinkle on it, and then she would roll it up and give it to them. And I thought they were my friends. They weren't my friends. They wanted to take advantage of my mom's goodness and hospitality. But listen. The tragedy of Christianity is that we stand at a distance and we long to be with him, but we think because we sinned, he doesn't want us to come into the kitchen, if you will, and be with him. And tonight he would tell you, whatever you've done, he would say, I've already taken care of it at the cross, on the altar, please come in and be with me. Can I tell you something else about the tabernacle? As you look past the altar and the smoke coming up, and as you look, as you look at the, the cherubim embroidered on the outside of the Holy of Holies, it is a picture of Eden. Because of Adam and Eve in their and their guilt, their shame, and their fears are being driven out to the east. They would turn around, and what they would see as they looked towards the entrance of Eden, yes, a little, a little um, imagination here, they would see the cherubim protecting the entrance. But when we look at the tabernacle, when we look at the cross, God says, I've made a way for you to come in. Please come in. Don't stand at the entrance of the, of, of the kitchen and appreciate the fragrance of the tortilla. Come in and consume. Come in and be with me. This is for somebody tonight. 
Jesus says of the kingdom that it is at hand. The kingdom of God isn't a fixed uh, geographic location. I want, I want you to think differently. You know, when we think of kingdoms, maybe, maybe England or London, we think of palaces, we think of thrones, we think of, you know, guys with big bushy hats, you know, you know walking around like that. We think of all of this. We think of, of people having different titles and ranks. But for the kingdom of God, I want you to think of none of that. Again, it's not a geographic location. I want you to think no borders, no boundaries. In one way, it refers to God's rule over all of creation. His rightful as creator over all of creation is his. All of creation worships him. But in another way, in another sense, it can also speak of God's presence. Remember, you experience it when you pray, when you worship, when you study the word, when you take communion tonight, we will experience, we are experiencing his presence. Give me, let me give you a couple of verses here regarding the kingdom of God. And this first comes when Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders who had accused him of being, having power over demonic entities by the power of Beelzebub. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus said, But if it is by the Spirit of God, if I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he's telling the religious leaders, you watch what I'm doing. You study what I'm doing. And if it is by God's spirit, then the kingdom of God has come, listen to the terminology, upon you. God's presence is here, is what he was telling them. Not Satan's presence is here, God's presence is here. Let me give you another verse from Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not, come, does not come with observation. That is, it can't be seen. Nor will they say, see here or see there. Now, listen to this. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. You get up early tomorrow morning. You grab your cup of tea, decaf, green tea. I'm sorry. This is my, this is my deal. You sit down in your chair, you open your Bible, you pray, the presence of God, the presence of God. You worship, the presence of God. The pre- you confess sin, the presence of God, the presence of God, the presence of God. You close your Bible, you put your teacup away, or you're going to get in trouble with your wife, and then you go about your day. You have, listen, you have been changed and transformed into the image of Jesus, Paul says, from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to the next. And the lie is, you do that and nothing happens. You prayed, nothing happens. You worship, nothing happens. You read the Bible, nothing happens. You took communion, nothing happens. And God says, as you were in my presence, you were changed and transformed. And I have offered a sacrifice on my altar so that you can be with me. And you and I take that good old American work ethic and we lay it aside and we enter in. And we're changed. And we're transformed. The kingdom of God is his presence. Right now it's in our hearts. One day Jesus will rule and reign on this earth. And I don't know about you. I'm ready for that to happen ASAP, pronto. Now, when he says that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it means that it is within reach. 
It's important for you to know that Galileans in particular felt far away from God. Well, they were literally far away from Jerusalem. They were literally far away from the kingdom. They had this inability to say certain Hebrew words. They already felt different. They were in the north with the Gentiles. They felt like they were excluded. So when they go down to Jerusalem, they don't necessarily make eye contact with people because they look different. They sound different. But Jesus said, I, the kingdom of God, have drawn near to you. The woman caught in the act of adultery. Woman, where are your accusers? Lord, there are none. Neither do I accuse you. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Go and sin no more. Tonight, my friends, we are experiencing the kingdom of God here because his presence is here, because he wants to be with you. You know the story, Adam and Eve working in the garden, overseeing, stewarding God's creation, doing this, doing that. Suddenly they sense there's a wind coming through the, through the boughs and the, and the branches of the trees. They stop what they're doing. What they're doing is good. What they're doing is necessary. A part of what they're doing is what they were created to do. But they recognize we need to stop. We need to stop. And they turn and they move in his direction. They go to be with him. It says that they walked with him in the cool of the day. That is what you were created to do. To walk with him in the cool of the day and to believe by faith, you and I, that he not only wants to be with us, but that he wants to give us life, abundant life. And Jesus is making the kingdom of God available to all. To, every, to, to both genders, to all ethnicities, to the young, to the old, to all. And in the Galilean mind, those Jews are close to God. We have no hope of ever being close to God. Those people are going to heaven. I have no idea if I will luckily get into heaven. And Jesus says, no, the kingdom of God has come to you. You don't have to go to Jerusalem because God's presence has come to you in the person of Jesus. We hear an echo of John's message when Jesus makes issues of the call to repent and believe, to turn from your sin and believe. Listen to this. Jesus is saying, trust in me now for the forgiveness of sins. Obviously, this requires faith. The basis of our forgiveness is Jesus' death. Remember the altar. Remember the cross. Remember God's way of making a way for you and I. For the Jews, it meant turning away from an established sacrificial system. It meant change. It meant that they would, they would realize at some point in time in the future that the sacrificial system would slowly slip by the wayside. This isn't something you and I deal with, but it's something that the, the Galileans would deal with. It also meant that they would change their expectation of what the Messiah is. They would expect a military or a political ruler. And yet he came as a rabbi and a teacher. They expected a man on a horse who would, be, who would lead them against Rome. But they, had a, they experienced a man who would reach down and lift up small children, look into their eyes, and bless them. And if I could be very honest with you tonight, some of our greatest needs tonight is to realize that Jesus wants to pick you up and hold you in his arms and bless you. 
that is the creator of the universe, the man, the God who created you with a plan and a purpose, wants to look into your very soul and say, you are good, I created you good, I fashioned you according to my likeness, we were created in his image, listen, and I have a place for you. At my table, it's interesting that when King David made a place at his table for Meshibapheth, I, I said that wrong, I'm not going to remember, Jonathan's son, who was crippled, that he invited him to his table. And we all understand that at that time, a king would slay or kill or execute anyone who might be a threat to the throne. And David says, at my table with my family, and for you who are sitting here tonight or you who are watching online or you who are on Solomon's porch, God is saying through the cross, I have a place for you at my table. Jesus won't deal with Rome. He's not going to enter into politics. He's not going to clean up man's mess. He's bringing the kingdom of God that will reside within the people's hearts until the day that he returns and establishes his kingdom on this planet. Almost done. Hang with me. I want you to see as we move on here to the calling of the disciples, I want you to see the difficulty of accepting the lamb when expecting the lion. a challenge that the Galileans would have, and they would come. So we're going to move on to the calling of, of uh, four disciples now. And I, I realize that this can look abrupt, at least to me when I'm reading through the gospel narrative, this seems very abrupt to me. But I want you to know that, that at this point in time, it's not the first time these brothers, these two sets of brothers, meet Jesus. John chapter 1 records the initial introduction. John chapter 1, verse 36, Andrew hears John the Baptist's declaration, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Later on, he tells Simon, We have found the Messiah in John 1, 41. Then in John 1, 42, Simon meets Jesus, and Jesus changes his name before, before he calls him from Galilee. And I think the reason I point this out is because you and I stop and think, well, maybe not you, maybe it's me, maybe it's my therapist I need to talk to about this. But I say, if Jesus came to me here, would I just drop everything and follow him? It's not necessarily a representation of what happened. They had heard John preach of the Messiah coming. They saw John baptize Jesus. They recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. So when he shows up to call him, they're prepared. So let's go ahead and read verses 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, this is the early followers, he sees Simon and and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending or, or repairing the nets, the fishing nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. The fact that they have hired servants probably tells us that they had a, a pretty good business going on. There's some Bible scholars that point that in that the, this, these four disciples already had a career, already had um, 
their lives going on with a business means that they had, they had likely been passed over by other rabbis. And here you have Jesus coming and calling men later in life. A little bit about the Sea of Galilee. It's an inland freshwater lake. It's approximately 14 miles long, six miles wide. It's 682 feet below sea levels, probably one of the purest bodies of water because Mount Hermon, the snow, sort of like the Sierra Nevada for us is a water source. Mount Hermon gets snow in the winter. It goes down through the rock. It comes up around Caesarea Philippi. The upper Jordan feeds into the Sea of Galilee, and then, it, and then the lower Galilee exit the Sea of Galilee. And because of this, this the source of the water and because of, it, it, because of its being coming in and being released, it's very, very fresh. Something else for you to know. Fishing could be lucrative. There were some species of fish, or there were some types of fish that only could be found in the Sea of Galilee, and they were shipped around the Roman Empire. Verse 16 reminds us that Jesus calls ordinary people. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm sitting in a congregation and I think, oh, they left their hands higher than me. Oh, they sing louder than me for good reason. Trust me. They sing louder than me. They seem to have the words memorized because they closed their eyes. And what we might do from time to time is think, like the Galileans of the Jews in Judea, they're closer to God and me, and I'm here to tell you not so. Not so. Jesus chooses ordinary people from ordinary lives. I worked in construction for a number of years. I know you can tell by the way I walk, but um, there are those times you grab that guy's hand and it is like a rock. You are to see these men. Their faces are dark and sunburned. They know strong, hard work by strong backs, by pulling nets. They know danger because they venture out onto a, a lake where many have perished and died. These guys are tough. Because of their loyalty that I noted earlier, they'll fight in the drop of a hat. So Jesus goes to the union hall. Jesus goes where the guys are playing cards and maybe have an adult beverage and a smoke. And he said, follow me. And they drop their nets and they follow Jesus. And you are following him. And you are no different than, him, than they are. You by faith are following Jesus. I want you to per picture imperfect men taking the gospel beyond Galilee to the world. Tradition tells us that they would all be martyred for their faith in Christ, except for John, the son of Zebedee. I want you to see these four men seeing Jesus on the shore. They're not too far away, hearing his words, and by faith, following him. I want you to see their imperfection. I already noted that and they follow him. And some say to me, Danny, Danny, is this when they were saved? 
Or, or was it in, in John 20, 21 and 22, where Jesus, after the resurrection, said, John says, receive the Spirit, and then he blew on them. Is that when they were saved? The fact of the matter is that, that from the, the text, we don't know when the disciples were born again. We don't know when they walked forward. We don't know when they said the prayer. And the reason I bring that up is because of this. You have the disciples whose salvation or coming to faith in Christ was gradual, perhaps very much a process. They're the Sunday school teacher. They're the person who says, I was raised in the church and I teach Sunday school. And, and, you know, sometimes you have people come up in this pulpit and they'll share a testimony. I was riding with the Hell's Angels and I was robbing banks and, you know, I spit on the sidewalk every now and then. And and then I came to Jesus and we have, and we're all like, And the Sunday school teacher sits in the back and goes, I don't know when I was saved. And you have other people who say, I was born again in 1998. At this time, I said the prayer. And, And they know specifically. And the reason I bring this up is because for some of us, salvation is a process Yet it's no less valid than the Apostle Paul on his way to Damascus. Jesus reveals himself to him. You know the story. And he has this dramatic conversion. Both conversions have validity. They follow Jesus. And you're following Jesus. And he's provided a way for you to enter into the Holy of Holies into fellowship with the Father. Oswald Chambers said, of Lord's, our Lord's conception of discipleship is not that we work for God, but that God works through us. Our last section here is the Galilean ministry Sabbath instruction. And they, that is Jesus and the disciples, went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were, astonished, they were astonished or amazed at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And yes, there is a contrast there. A little bit about Capernaum. It says it's a fishing village. If you go to Israel now, you'll likely visit there and do a Bible study there. It's on the shores of Galilee. And it says that while he was there immediately on the Sabbath, he went into the synagogue, and that's where he was teaching. So he goes to his fishing village, which is is situated on the Imperial Highway, a major road from Damascus down to the Mediterranean Sea. And this village would serve as Jesus' base for the totality of his ministry. Synagogue worship, this is important for you to know, was predictable. The the teacher, the rabbi, would sit down. He would be handed a scroll. He would open up. He would read it. He would close it. He would give it back. And then he would quote a noted rabbi's interpretation of the passage that he read. Jesus taught differently. He was given the scroll, he opened it, he read it, he gave it back, and then he interpreted it. He didn't quote a rabbi, he didn't quote a noted teacher, he, the rabbi from Nazareth, who had no formal training or education, explained the scriptures. Danny, what do you mean by that? In Matthew chapter 21, 
I'm sorry, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, it says in verse 21, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. He's quoting the law. Verse 22, it says, but I say to you, this is the interpretation, this is Jesus' interpretation. He's not quoting somebody else. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of, to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council of the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, you fool, or you empty-headed one, will be liable of hellfire. Jesus moves the people from external observance of the law to the intent of the heart. He goes away from the law which is holy and right and its form, and he takes that principle, that truth, and he plants it square in the hearts of the people. But he does it in a way that they understand. They go to church and they don't know what the rabbi said or meant. They go to church because they're supposed to go to church. But today, the word of God was opened in such a way that it, that it spoke to their hearts and to their minds. God sees nurturing anger, Jesus said, against another person as being sinful, something that was beyond their wildest imagination. Almost done. Messianic authority allows Jesus to interpret scripture for those who heard him with the desire of obeying. That's critical. His explanation of the law, which previously made little sense on a practical level, caused people to listen, to consider who is this man teaching us in such a way that we understand and can apply it to our lives. Who is he? Is he the Messiah? If he is the Messiah, If God's presence has come to my synagogue, to my church, to my community today, then I need to decide what I'm going to do with him. And that is what amazed them. That is what troubled them. That is what made church unlike any other church service before. Except that next week we'll see that a demon also visited church, but that's for next week. I close with this. Jesus looked like everyone else in the room. He looked like anyone else in the room. He didn't stand out physically. His words are better. His language was common, likely Aramaic. But when he taught, everything changed. When he taught, hearts sensed the presence of life. Not burdened with more to do, but the hope that I can become alive that I can know God, that my life can change as much as I desire it for it to change because of him, not because of me. This brings joy to those who receive him, but it troubles those who reject him. By word of application, and then we'll take communion together. I want you to think or ponder on these three things, questions. My friends, tonight, are you free? Tonight, are you free from performance? Tonight, are you free to enjoy his presence? Jesus is here to set you free. Tonight, are you loved? Tonight, are you loved? 
Do you know that the God of the universe placed himself on the altar of the cross as an expression of his love for you? And he doesn't say, you need to work on this. You need to be a little better. He said, I bore your sin. Do you know that you're loved? And then lastly, are you alone? Are you even in a crowd alone? Are you even with a group alone? Are you, as you lay your head on the pillow at night, alone because he came to be with you? Didn't he tell us, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I will be with you into the end of the age? But Jesus, sometimes I do this, and sometimes I say this, and Jesus, sometimes I intentionally do this, and he says, I will never abandon you. As others have abandoned you, I will never slander you. I will never, ever do anything but love you and be with you. That is why we have the incarnation. So if you need a communion cup, I know, rough transition, right? But if you need a communion cup, please raise your hand, and the ushers will make sure that you have one tonight. Remember... His presence, it it is symbolic. Don't get me wrong. This is symbolic, but his presence is here. I I have young theologians come to me. Danny, Danny, yeah, symbolism, yeah, absolutely, symbolism. But when we do this, something happens. When you pray, something happens. When you worship, something happens. When you study God's word, something happens. And when we observe communion, something happens. Again, please raise your hand if you would like to, to observe communion with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. We have great ushers. We have some folks up here in the front. Bess? Are you guys good? Yeah, okay, okay. I'm going to read you one verse, and the worship team uh, will come out, and we'll, we'll, I'm going to read you this verse, and then we're going to worship, and then we'll take our communion together. I want to read you this passage from 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says, For I, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, past tense, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. That is when Judas Iscariot turned his back on Jesus, that Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said to the disciples, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup. And after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.